series from Matthew 5, uh, and I'm on the verses of 27 to 30 on Jesus' words about adultery. And uh, let me read these for you as the outset of our message this morning. <coughs> Jesus said, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In some ways, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus is declaring the importance of this one of the Ten Commandments, and then he's reinforcing that adultery really is a matter of one's heart and something that can have dramatic effect on one's soul. In three words, Jesus' take on adultery is this. Don't do it. Would you say that with me? Don't do it. Okay, let's close in prayer. Um, no we're not going to because as you know preachers are supposed to take simple things and make them very complicated so uh, let me say a little bit more on this and this morning actually unlike a lot of approaches um, I would like to deal with this subject theologically I think we need to understand first and foremost this why is this such an important issue to God And then we need to learn how to build hedges around our marriages to protect them from adultery. And as I begin, I do want to acknowledge the pain that's associated with this subject. Some of you have experienced this. And it possibly has ended uh, in the dissolution of your marriage. Uh, Maybe right now you are caught up in some kind of affair or thinking of having one or in an emotional affair of some sort. And you're trying to get out of it and do the right thing. Maybe your parents have had an affair and are, as a result, you are very confused about that. Why did mom do this? Why did dad do that? And today, as I speak on this subject, I don't want to add to your pain at all. Yet I know that just by talking about this issue, it can be very upsetting and painful for people. And my intent is not to upset you. But my goal today is to help us see this problem area from God's perspective. And as we will discover, although he loves the sinner, God hates the sin of adultery. And that's a biblical reality. This is really an adult subject as well, but one that young people also need to be very much aware of. I heard the story of a child who was with his father in church and the pastor was speaking on adultery. And on the way home, the child said, Dad, what does it really mean, thou shalt not commit agriculture? (laughs) And without skipping a beat, the father said, well, that means you shouldn't plow in another man's field. (laughs) 
In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus reiterates this commandment from God's top 10, way before David Letterman had one. Uh, And he says, do not commit adultery. And when this command was first given to Israel by God, they were coming out of bondage in Egypt, out of Egypt, and becoming settled in the promised land. And this was a time, a key time, when God was demonstrating through Israel what it looks like to live in a theocracy, in the kingdom of God. It describes what it looks like for people to honor the king of the kingdom. And the initial hearers would have understood that in the Ten Commandments, God was really expressing his core values as a reflection of who he was as their God. And I imagine after hearing the Ten Commandments, they would have gone back to their tents and probably had some great discussion about who God is and what he's like. And and a thoughtful Israelite would have pondered, well, why did God say this? Why did he talk about the Sabbath? Why did he talk about... Uh, envy or coveting or why did he talk about adultery and what does that say about who God is and what he's like and they probably concluded if God really said this if God really values this if these are his core values as reflected in who he is and what he's like then if I want to live under God's rule I too need to embrace his values as my own And hopefully we can have that kind of thoughtfulness here today as well. So when we come to this commandment re-expressed by Jesus, you shall not commit adultery, we first need to ask, what does this tell us about God? Why is fidelity so important to him? What is his primary intent in giving us this statement? Now as I prepared for this message, and I do prepare for messages, rarely do I say anything unique. (laughs) I borrow or steal from from others, but I borrow from other people. But as I was doing some research and studying on this this whole subject, um, I came across a few foundational thoughts. Uh, One person said, adultery does not begin below the belt, it begins above the neck. It's true. Another one said, before you cheat on your spouse, you will cheat on God. And I really like what Ravi Zacharias said. He said, no other love can be defined until the love of God can be understood. Joseph in the Old Testament uh, understood the need to think of adultery first and foremost in a theological way. In Genesis 39, you might recall the story when Joseph's boss's wife was making sexual advances towards him. Remember that story? Uh, He sought for what it was truly what it truly was. Uh, He says in Genesis 39, my master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. And then look at this statement. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God by having an affair with you? He could have done it. It, She was persistent. Why didn't he? Joseph recognized that adultery was contrary to the nature and to the character of God. He understood that spiritual adultery precedes physical adultery. If one commits spiritual adultery against God, they are then wide open to committing physical adultery against their spouse. And God is saying here, because I so highly value a deep and meaningful love relationship with my people, 
you too should so highly value a deep and meaningful and faithful love relationship with your spouse. How many of you enjoy a good love story? What's your favorite love story movie out there? I knew somebody would say that one. Any others? Gone with the wind. <laughs> Any others? Notice how it's all the women that are giving out these. There's some guy in the back saying, Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> well, I enjoy a good love story, um, but we need to understand the story of God's love for us really is the love story of love stories, isn't it? We sang about that this morning. As we read through the prophets, we see the passion that God has for our hearts. And he is in some ways like a jilted lover. Now, I say that with deep respect because God is so far above that. Um, but it does communicate that he does have strong emotion for his people. A spouse who has been cheated on is extremely conflicted. On the one hand, they love their spouse deeply, but on the other hand, they are so deeply hurt. So they may find themselves conflicted saying, I hate you, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you, but how could you do this? And that's how God feels towards us when we replace his love for other things in our lives. He loves us deeply, but can also be hurt deeply. And when we commit spiritual adultery, it causes him great pain. And perhaps the greatest portrayal of this in the scriptures is found in the Old Testament book of Hosea. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, or your, your tablet or your iPad or your phone or whatever you want to use. But if you use, use that, please turn Facebook off. <clears throat> um, God wanted us to be fully aware of his feelings in his love story with us. So he gave strange instruction to the prophet Hosea. And here's a brief outline, as you can see on the screen here. Uh, there's the personal story, the agony of an unfaithful spouse. And it talks about marriage and children and separation and reunion. And that is paralleled with the national story of what's really going on in Israel at that particular time. And God asked Hosea, who incidentally his name happens to mean savior... He asked Hosea to act as a visual aid to the nation. And listen to God's instruction to Hosea in chapter 1. He says, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibling. In this account, Hosea symbolizes God and Gomer symbolizes Israel, who has and is committing spiritual adultery towards God. And God is saying to Hosea that his marriage to Gomer will serve as an example of how Israel keeps breaking God's heart. And God is saying through this example here, I love you, I love you, but why are you doing this? I love you, but I want you to be faithful to me. Hosea and Gomer marry and they have some children. In verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, then the Lord said to Hosea, call your firstborn son here, call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Now you're saying, what is that all about? 
Well, that name Jezreel uh, refers to a valley in which much blood had been shed in Israel's history of battle. And the word Jezreel is a reminder to people of the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of disobedience to God. It wasn't a nice name, like Bob or Susan or something like that. It was a bad name, Jezreel. So when Hosea and Gomer would call their son for dinner and say, Jezreel, Jezreel, come on in, dinner time, everybody in the community would cringe. Oh, why did they name him that? That's such an awful image. Then they have a daughter. In chapter 1, verse 6, we read this. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, which means not loved. Not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel. No mercy, no compassion, not love. So again, imagine what went through the minds of the neighbors when uh, they would call, Lo Rahama, dinner's ready. Hey, unloved one, your dinner's on the table. Then they had a third child, a son. After she had weaned Lo Rahama, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Hey, bloodshed. <laughs> hey, low Ruhama, not mine, you know. Tell your, your brother here that uh, it's dinner time. Can you imagine the confusion of that in the minds of those children, in the minds of the community people? Man, would those kids ever be in need of therapy, eh? And you chuckle at that, and I do too. But that's always the case when a husband or wife chooses adultery. Dramatic, dramatic effects on the children. Can you imagine Israel watching this unfold? You know, they see a lady sneaking out of the house late one night with a lantern, and they would say, oh, there goes Gomer again. You know, what's with Hosea? Can't he see what's, what's going on here? Is he blind? And the rest of this book poetically expresses this love-hate relationship that occurs when a spouse finds their partner has cheated on them. I love you, I hate you, I want you, but how could you do this to me? I desire you, but don't touch me because you're filthy. All of these raw emotions of a jilted spouse. And this book shows the emotion of God when his people commit spiritual adultery and dethrone him in their lives. God leaves out several charges against these people through the story of Hosea and Gomer. Let me just show you a few of his rants. And when you study the book of Hosea, it's not a linear kind of thing. It's a, it's a circular kind of outline that's all over the place. But let me just show you a few of his rants here. In uh, chapter 4, he says, There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follow, follows bloodshed. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest. Because you've ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. A spirit of prostitution leads them astray. They're unfaithful to their God. A people without understanding will come to ruin. Now, that's not the kind of phrase you say amen to, but you say, wow. <laughs> Whoa, isn't that true? Hmm. You might think that's harsh, but picture the emotion coming from a spouse who just finds out they've been betrayed. 
you know, God's not sugarcoating this spiritual adultery. He's saying, you don't even know who I am. You're so distant from me. And look at what he says. I'm bringing this charge against you for no faithfulness to me, no love expressed, no acknowledgement that I even exist. And God says, okay, if you're going to ignore me, how would you feel if I ignore you? If you've rejected me, how would, I, how would you feel if I rejected you? Now, that, that's just a rant, but you can see that that's a reflection of a, of a jilted spouse, a jilted lover, isn't it? But God continues to rant. In Hosea chapter 6, he writes, O Israel and Judah, what should I do with you? Asks the Lord. For your love vanishes like the morning mist and disappears like dew in the sunlight. I sent my prophets to cut you to pieces, to slaughter you with my words, with judgments as inescapable as light. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. But like Adam, you broke covenant and betrayed my trust. And here God is saying, what am I going to do with you? And God continues this outburst in chapter 13. He says, but I've been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. The Ten Commandments. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. And look what he says. So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. Isn't that awful? <clears throat> and here God is referring to a deep history he had with these people. And he refers to the Ten Commandments. And how he wanted them to acknowledge no God but him. He fed them. He looked after them. You think they would have been grateful. But they overlooked God. Those are the words that a, a spouse would say to someone else. I, you know, I supported you. I provided for you. I put you through university. You know, I, I've raised the children. I've done all of these kinds of things. Yet you're still just walking away from me? And again, hear the heart of a wounded lover here. And then God in a graphic way says well maybe this will help you remember like a wild animal I'm going to attack you and then, then maybe you won't ignore me like a leopard stalking its prey like a mother bear robbed of her cubs and we all know you never want to get in between a mother bear and her cubs right and again you, you just see the passion and intensity that God feels here when we wander far away from him. And through this real life play, God is reinforcing the seriousness of people committing spiritual adultery. We are like Gomer. God is like Hosea. Now, turn to your neighbor right now and say, you are such a Gomer. You know? <coughs> Not Homer. <laughs> We are like Gomer. God is like Hosea. That's the picture in the book. But fortunately for us, although he's a wounded lover, he's a faithful lover, as this drama portrays. There's hope for those who commit spiritual adultery. There's hope for those that commit physical adultery as well. 
And let's look at God's faithfulness in Hosea chapter 2. Hosea would have been justified in walking away from, from Gomer. And, and that's the whole divorce and remarriage thing that John's going to deal with next week. Um, he could have walked away. But God tells him not to. Not to. To provide a, an, an illustration of God's faithfulness. Let's, let's look at this. In Hosea chapter 2. God says, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? And let's unpack this a little bit, because essentially God's saying to Hosea... Go get her. Go find the girl. Because of your faithful love to her, go and get her and woo her back to yourself. Go after her. Why? Because that's how God treats his people who have strayed. He adds, even though you've repeatedly committed adultery towards me, I'm going to put my ring back on your finger. Give you a fresh start. And isn't that reflective of Romans 8, 35 to 39? You know, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing, nothing, nor height, nor depth, anything else will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now, you don't have to say wow to that, but you could say amen if you want. I mean, isn't that wonderful, God's faithfulness to us and his provision in Christ Jesus? Even our lack of faithfulness will not separate us from the love of God. Our love falters always, doesn't it? His love is perfect. And look at uh, verse 23 of Hosea chapter 2. God says, in that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies. They will respond to the earth. And the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the olive oil. And they'll all respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. And isn't this fascinating here, that here God is reversing the names of the children. Remember Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami? Remember them? Bloodshed, not loved, not mine. Here their names are changed. Jezreel, instead of being a place of battle, will become a place of growth. Lo-Ruhamah, not loved, will become loved one. Lo, me, not my people, will be changed to you are my people. Isn't that beautiful? What a beautiful story of redemption and, and, and even restoration that God has for us as portrayed through the story of Hosea and Gomer. But there's a cost to this reconciliation of redemption. A cost to Hosea as there was a cost to God. In Hosea chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, it says, The Lord said to me, 
Hosea. Go show your, life, your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. <coughs> I think that's a sour cream glaze at Tim Hortons or something like that. I'm not sure, but <coughs> just something in some kind of pagan worship there. But look at this. Hosea says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. Now, that might sound fairly mundane, but let me try to, to flesh this out a little bit. Possibly Gomer was so far gone that she was a sex slave and she needed to be purchased, even though she was Hosea's wife. And can you picture that scene? You know, Hosea is running around in the red light district of town looking for his wife. And meanwhile, Gomer is dragged from some dingy room and put on the auction block in front of a whole bunch of drooling drunks, dirtied, half-naked, bruised. And her eyes look around at that room to all of these people who are bidding on her, lusting eyes, men who want to use and abuse her. But all of a sudden, as she scans the crowd, she sees a different set of eyes. Some loving eyes. The eyes of Hosea. And can't you imagine that just tears quickly pool up in both of their eyes as they make that kind of connection across the room? Hope springs up in her heart. Will he accept me back? Look at how far I've fallen. Will he accept me back? And I imagine Hosea looking at that pimp and says... Give me that woman. She is my wife. And the pimp says, well, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. And Hosea doesn't negotiate. He doesn't care about the price. He just pays what the asking price is. And he, listen carefully, he buys back what was originally his. And I imagine him helping her off the auction block and wrapping his cloak around her and pulling her close. And as their eyes met and their, their bodies touched, I wonder what Gomer was thinking. Can you imagine her relief? Yet can you also imagine the overwhelming sense of shame she would have had at first? Shame that would be met with grace. Grace that was costly, but inspired by a deep and faithful and meaningful love. How grateful Gomer would have been for Hosea's forgiveness. And I imagine he would hold her close, and as she was crying perhaps, and as he was crying perhaps in that tender scene, I wonder if he whispered in her ear something like, okay, everything's going to be fine now. Live with me in love. No more of that harmful behavior. Now let's go home. The kids are dying to see you. You know, there's a great message here for all of us. One, we're all spiritual adulterers, aren't we? We've all cheated on God. We've all been unfaithful to God. Yet because of his grace, God has forgiven and purchased us back to himself. 
<coughs> Romans 5, 8 to 10 expands on this where it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. While we're still in that awful behavior, Christ died for us. Even in our betrayal of God, while engaging in spiritual adultery, Jesus died for us to pay the price to bring us back. Our redemption, though, cost Jesus his life. You know, so much more could be said about this and explored in the story, and I encourage you to read it and study it on your own, uh, but I need to land this plane now, I think. <coughs> When God said, you shall not commit adultery, it was because at his core, he deeply values relationships that are characterized by faithfulness. Faithfulness to him first, and then faithfulness to our spouse. And in our marriage, when there is adultery, we mar and we distort the deep value that God has for faithfulness in relationships. A lack of spiritual faithfulness hurts him deeply. A lack of spousal faithfulness grieves him deeply. Do we understand that? Like Rabbi Zachariah said, no other love can be defined until the love of God can be understood. Now, spiritually speaking, there is a war going on in Canadian bedrooms these days, isn't there? And that's why on this issue, as well as so many other issues, we need to dig deep into our spiritual and emotional and psychological health to see reality for what it is. Because on this issue in particular, this is extremely deceptive. It really is a tricky area of life to navigate through. And although Jesus' words are clear, the implications for us can be quite complex. Now, Jesus mentions about cutting off body parts. And, and I think you all know that he didn't literally mean that. There's a guy over here going, whew, you know, yeah, great. He, he, but what he's saying is that it is so serious that, you know, that might be something to consider, you know. But he's speaking more about, uh, about looking at this issue with great seriousness. Um, I want to draw your attention to just a few principles in conclusion here that may be helpful for us in building a hedge of protection around our marriages. And here's the concept I'd like to suggest to you here. Um, four things we need to do. Guard our heart, honor marriage, take thoughts captive to Christ, and then flee sexual sin. Let's look at guard your heart for a moment. Just like our physical hearts, our emotional hearts are very fragile. In Proverbs 4, it says, above all else, above everything else, Guard your heart, for everything you do flows out from it. And this means that we are to be thinking and feeling and acting in a, in a healthy way so as not to get sidetracked from God-honoring living. This doesn't happen naturally. And that's why God says, guard your heart, defend it, protect it, shield it. Affairs happen when people drop their guard. And so many people, you know, I've been a pastor for over 25 years and, and come across a lot of people in this situation here. And so many people who have committed adultery have said afterwards, I never thought it would happen to me. I never thought I could do something like that. The reality is it can happen to anyone. 
We are not as strong as we think we are. Therefore, we must vigilantly stand guard over our hearts. But secondly, we're to honor marriage. Hebrews 13.4 is a key verse that explains that. It says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed be kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And two concepts stand out here to me. One, healthy marriages should be everybody's business. Um, all of you here need to be concerned about each other's marriages, whether you're married or single. Um, kids, are there any kids and teenagers in the crowd here? Or are they somewhere else? There's some here. Would you, can I just talk to you for a moment? I can't see you. Maybe they're all up there in the balcony. I don't know. But kids, go easy on your folks. Go, don't, don't make life difficult for them. Go easy on them. Make life a little bit easier for them. Say, Mom and Dad, go on out on a date together. Just leave me money for pizza. <laughs> but you go out on a date and encourage that. Like Marriage should be honored by all. Single people. All the single ladies? All the single ladies. <coughs> <coughs> if you're single, you need to honor marriage as well. How awful it would be for you, a single man or a woman, to break up a happy home. What a tragedy that would be. Another important concept in this verse says that the marriage bed should be kept pure. A couple's bed should be reserved for them and them only. We are not to crawl into another person's bed. God has designed sex to be exclusively between a married husband and wife. That is the context. We are only to have sex with our spouse. And that's why I believe that premarital sex is also wrong. Uh, sex is to be reserved for that one person we are making a lifelong commitment to. I should add here too, the marriage bed should be kept pure, but I think it should be made really exciting too. I take no responsibility for what conversation generates from that this afternoon. <laughs> but maybe we'll have a baby boom here. I have to go to the third service, and the, you know, that kind of thing. <clears throat> That's church growth. Number three, real quick. Take thoughts captive to Christ. Our culture is so sexually charged, isn't it? It's crazy. Every TV show you see has some kind of adulterous affair on it. And, and it makes them look exciting. And unfortunately, it makes affairs look normal. This is something everybody does. What do we do when we see these distortions in our culture? We take those thoughts and bring them captive to Christ. Second um, Corinthians 10, look at verse 5 there. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take every, captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. A pretension really is any loose thought or emotion or impulse that's not God-honoring. Lastly, flee lust. Do we all realize how vulnerable we are to sexual sin? In light of that, instead of working so hard to manage our temptation, perhaps it would be wiser to run away, flee. And that's what 
1 Corinthians 6 says, flee from sexual immorality. Like, don't try to fight it. Flee, run away. And that's what Joseph did, right? Our bodies belong to God. We're like a living temple in which God dwells. So why would we want to unite ourselves with someone else like that? You know, God doesn't say, well, try to tough it out. Take a cold shower. <laughs> you know, use willpower when tempted sexually. He doesn't say that. He, that's like taking a penknife to a sword fight. He says, run, run away, get the heck out of there. Satan is an expert at messing people up sexually, so a quick exit is often the best strategy. Well, so much more could be said about how to avoid adultery, and I'm going to ask the band maybe to come up at this stage if you can get ready for our closing song, but um, let me just say that if you are, have fallen in this area, or if you're struggling in this area, would you please seek help immediately and I believe there's people here who would pray with you and counsel you and help you work through those kinds of things there is hope of saving a marriage after adultery but it does involve an awful lot of hard work in my years of uh, as being a pastor I've seen many marriages rocked by adultery some with horrible circumstances but I've also watched how God in a redemptive way brings healing and restoration to a couple and often will write a happy ending to their story. There is always hope with God. You know, Paul Brand, the, uh, the missionary doctor who worked for many years among leprosy victims in India, said these challenging words. And I think it's a response to the question, is it worth it? He says, as I enter my sixth decade of marriage, I can say without a flicker of hesitation that the basic human virtue of faithfulness to one partner is the most joyful way of life. I've always trusted my wife completely and she me. We've been a, each been able to channel love and commitment and intimacy to one person, a lifelong investment that is now in old age paying rich dividends. Isn't that beautiful? I think we're going to sing in a moment, correct? Um, could you all stand, please, and... Uh, if, uh, if you are here with your sweetheart, would you, um, would you maybe just hold their hands and uh, just quietly say a, a prayer for them? If you are single or if you're a teenager, not married, um, look around to somebody who's around you. Maybe even just put your hand out as an expression of a blessing upon that couple. And I'm going to pray for you, and then uh, Dan and the guys will lead us in a song. Father, I think each of us here are very much aware that we are not as strong as we think we are. Our world is rocked by this issue of adultery. And it's so important for us to realize why fidelity to you is so important and why fidelity in our marriage is so important. Lord, I pray a blessing on this congregation that you would protect these marriages that this church would be a lighthouse to this community when people would look at the congregation and say, boy, they got some great stuff going in, in their marriage, that that would be a means by which you can reach out to them with your love. Lord, for those that are really struggling right now and maybe on the verge of uh, doing something stupid, I pray that your spirit would just tell them to run and get the help they need right away and that you would give them courage to do that. 
Lord, whatever you're saying to us today, pray that each one of us would process that responsibly. And uh, Lord, I do thank you for the way you have redeemed us and the way that you restore our lives. And in you, we have hope. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.